We are continuing today our series entitled Trending, where we are looking at trends that tend to make promises that they have a hard time delivering on. Uh, today we're going to be looking into the future, future, future. It's a bad joke. I know, I know it was, but I like couldn't help myself from making it. Um, so yeah, we're going to be looking into the future, which is kind of appropriate for a lot of reasons, but one of which is because of who we have in here today. So if you're a kid, can you just raise your hand for me? Can I see? Yep. I didn't say age. So if you're a kid, raise your hand. Yep. Great. Um, if you are, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Um, if you're an adult in this room and I'm age specific this time, can we just like give it up for the kids in here? It's so awesome that you're here. We would not be who we are without you guys. And I'm so, so glad that you're here. And as we, as we consider, as we talk about the future today, we can't do it without thinking about kids, right? We can't do it without thinking about the next generation because in many ways, they embody what is going to come next. In this room right now are our next leaders, are our next culture shapers for better or for worse. And so if they're going to be the ones who shape the future, then it matters a lot how we view the future and how we can equip the next generation to engage the unknown with the hope of who God is. So as we've been moving along in this series, we've tried to outline social trends that either have the potential to or are actively leading us away from the fullest life that God has for us, usually in very subtle yet significant ways. And then we've done our best to offer what Pastor Chris called last week an attractive alternative in the life and mission of Jesus Christ. And, and we believe that Jesus is the hope of the world, that he exists and, and offers a life of absolute fullness, wholeness, peace, and salvation. And we'll be talking about that a little later on. So the trend, again, that we want to address today is the future. Notice how I didn't make the joke again. Thought about it, because that would be funny the second time, but it probably wasn't, so I didn't make it. But now I'm talking about it, which makes it even less funny. Okay. Um, but we are going to be talking about the future, specifically the cultural perception around the future. And if, if we're going to be talking about our cultural perception of the future, we can't talk about it without referencing technology. Whether we like it or not, our future or the way we view the future is it cannot be divorced from technology. Because there has been nothing stronger, no cultural evidence that has pushed us further forward than the existence of technology in our world today. And so if I were to map out the trend, I would envision it something, looking something like this. The future trend from going from disconnected to interconnected to self-dependent. And what, what I mean by that is this. There once was a time where something could happen like 300 miles from our house and we would never hear about it, right? Because it was too far away. That's too long of a journey to either get the news to us uh, quickly or we're, we're just never going there to find out about it. And now, right now, something were significant to happen, probably even something not significant to happen on the other side of the world, my phone would buzz and I would know about it. I would have pictures of it. I would, have vid- I would be there in every other sense of the word except for me being physically not there. We are more connected today than we have ever been. So we have moved from disconnected to interconnected. And a lot of good has come from that. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. But the dangerous trend that I see happening is we are becoming self-dependent. And what I mean by that is there are some things that technology can't do. There is a future of wholeness, of peace, of salvation that technology of the future cannot provide. So in order to kind of like bring this point home, I have a story. Now, preface. The story is 
fairly technical with a lot of technological jargon. But there will be pictures. So hang with me. If I lose you at the first, I promise you there are going to be pictures and it's going to be good. But, but just hang with me. So are you with me? Okay. In 1959, a guy by the name of Douglas Engelbar discussed the projected downscaling of integrated circuit size in an article of microelectronics and the art of similitude. That's sentence one. Okay? So let me explain. Now, I, I'm sure that all of you in this room know what an integrated circuit is. Of course you do. I, I don't. So I'm just going to explain this for my own benefit, knowing that all of you already know what that thing is. In fact, I have a picture of one right here. Boom. This is an integrated circuit. And this little guy is basically responsible for everything that your pad, your phone, your computer, your PC is able to do. And, and on this little guy are things known as components or transistors. And those are kind of the, the backbone or the engine of these circuits that make them do whatever they're able to do. The reason we have clearer uh, picture, the reason our technology is faster than ever before is because of components or transistors, depending on what you call it. And those are, these are essentially made out of a semiconductor material named silicon. You've heard, all heard of Silicon Valley, right? That's why it's called that, because th- this is what makes Silicon Valley so significant, this little tiny thing. By the way, for frame of reference, this thing is probably about the size of my fingernail, and on it exists about a billion components, or a billion transistors, just for a frame of reference. Still with me? Okay, here we go. Engelbar. So Engelbar wrote this article and it made some waves and he got invited to the 1960 Solid State Circuits Conference, which I hear next year is going to be crazy. (laughs) In the audience of his presentation was a man by the name of Gordon Moore. And this story is really about Gordon Moore. Because when he left the conference, he began working on a theory about how to make integrated circuits more widely usable by shoving more components onto them. And he started working on this theory, which is really significant because what he was basically theorizing was how to make technology faster, smaller, and more affordable. All good things. Then, a few years later, in 1965, Electronics Magazine came to Gordon and said, hey, we want you to write an article for our 35th anniversary about the component or the transistor industry. Where is it going to be in the next 10 years? And he said, okay, great. This is great. I've been working on this theory. I'll write it for you. And he entitled the article, Cramming More Components Onto Integrated Circuits, where he theorized that by 1975, so in 10 years, it would be possible to contain as many as 65,000 components on a single quarter-inch semiconductor or microchip, which had never been done before. It's kind of unprecedented for him to speculate, or to speculate that. And I have a picture of this very famous graph that he put together. So on the, on the left side of this graph, i got to look at my notes. On the left side of this graph is the number of component or transistors squared per integrated component. And on the bottom of this graph, it measures this growth against time. As you can see, even if none of that made sense, it's going straight up, right? It's going straight up, which means that there, there is... It's, it's happening really, really quickly. Th- these are years underneath here. And the basic theory was this. In its simplest form, Moore asserted that the number of transistors per integrated circuit would double approximately every two years. So wherever we are right now, we're going to double it in the next two years. And the thing is, is he was right. In fact, it's not Moore's theory. It's Moore's law. 
It has happened, and it has been the clarion call for technological advancement in our world. Now, if none of this makes sense, here come the pictures, okay? This has absolutely changed our world and our perception of the future. Number one, the increase in computing power first predicted by Gordon Moore in 1965 means that a single device, the smartphone, has become as powerful as an entire collection of devices and gadgets just a generation ago. And now, kids, this is what an iPod used to look like. <laughs> and this is here, this is Google Maps. All of this exists now. Who has a smartphone in this room? Me too. All of, all of that is, com- is compiled into a smartphone. Why? Because of Gordon's Law. Two, the exponential, this one's creepy, so <laughs> this one blew my mind. The exponential growth of computing power over time means that a single computer may one day have the supercomputing power of a single human brain. And guys, that's going to happen in our lifetime. Which will then lead us to the singularity, which means that by roughly 2045, a single computer may have the processing capability of all human brains combined. Number three. Across the entire technological spectrum, we've witnessed the incredible shrinking in the size of common technology products over the past 50 years made possible by cramming more transistors onto a single integrated circuit. There, not long ago, 60 years ago, a computer filled a room and now it fills the size of my pocket. Next, this one, this blew me away. Uh, according to Peter Demindis, author of the book Bold and another book called Abundance, the Future is Better Than You Think, which is a very interesting book, by the way. The average smartphone now boasts close to a million dollars worth of apps for free. I never thought of this before. Think of it, video conferencing, GPS, digital voice recorder, digital watch, five megs. This is like done in 2011, so the cameras are way better than that now. And it boasts of close to a million dollars for free. That comes stock in every smartphone now. Why? Because of Moore's Law. Uh, Number five, Moore's Law also helps us to understand the remarkable shrinking in the price and size of storage over the past few years. This picture is kind of fun. So this thing is is about the size, like physically, about the size of an industrial like printer in an office building. Uh, And this thing, it can fit on a keychain. This holds digitally 250 megabytes of storage. This is a terabyte. Now, I didn't really actually, and I tried to do the math. I'm not a math guy, so just hang with, I just don't know math. But a terabyte is like way more storage than the average person would ever need. I mean, this is like a Word document. And, And this is like all your music, all your files, all your pictures, all your videos with like room to spare, probably. But that's crazy. Why? Because of Moore's Law. And this is in 50 years. And, and then kids, not to mention the ability to crank out significantly better video games. This is what video games used to look like. I remember when they looked like this. And adults, this is not a picture of a human being. This, this is a digitally produced image of a face. I mean, it's kind of like pixelated, so it looks like that. But when it's smaller, it looks like a real person. And seven, another way to think about this, and this one's, this one's kind of wild too, uh, to kind of like put it in terms. In 1970, if you were to put 2,300 people in a concert hall and you were to keep them there for 40 years, that would be cruel and unusual punishment first. But second, if, they were, if, they were, if this population was guided by Moore's Law, 
then by then 40 years later, you would have 1.3 billion people, which is roughly the size of the country of China. So, we live in a world that has never been more connected. We live in a world that has never been more advanced. And due to this, a lot of good things have happened. Our world is getting less poor. It is getting healthier. More systems of governing are able to figure out how to govern their people well. Now, yes, there's a lot wrong with the world too, absolutely. But part of the reason we're, we depend on technology is because a doctor can go into sub-Saharan Africa and see a malaria outbreak in a third-world tribal country and send a text message and say, hey, we need help here, and it's there in 24 hours. That's a really good thing. However, there is a very real temptation in this to become self-dependent, to, re- to, to think in and of ourselves that we make the future our own, that we, in, in a sense, save ourselves. So if you're taking notes today, I encourage you to write this first point down. Technological progress doesn't equate to salvation. There are some things that technology cannot solve. And we'll get to that in a moment. So, let's go to the Bible now. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Um, if you don't know where Ecclesiastes is, go to Psalms. Then go to the right. There's Proverbs. Go to the right. Ecclesiastes. Okay? Now, Ecclesiastes is, is a very difficult book to read. And it's also a hard book to interpret, partly because it's like Proverbs in that it's mostly a compilation of, of a bunch of wisdom sayings, but with a lack of a cohesive narrative. But it's unlike Proverbs in its use and understanding of the source of wisdom. And that's really important. Where Proverbs is very sure about what wisdom is and what God's wisdom looks like, Ecclesiastes is kind of a journey to figure out what that wisdom is and what it looks like. Now, this is kind of known in in many Christian circles as the book of meaninglessness. Now, it's not a meaningless book, okay? What I mean is that word meaningless is used quite a few times in order to describe our main character's journey to find purpose, to find meaning, to find something outside of himself. And so let's meet that main character right now. Chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Pause right there. The main character's name is the pre- it's translated here as the preacher. Some, in some translations, it's the teacher or the king. Um, and a lot of people have, have attributed this to Solomon. We don't actually know if it's Solomon or not. Because the proper name in Hebrew is, is this. I think we have it here. Kohelet. Can everyone say Kohelet? Yeah, that's very good. So Kohelet is the main character in Ecclesiastes. And he goes on this journey to find meaning. And in the very next verse, we see not only the journey, but his method of discovering the journey, which is really, really important. In verse 13 of chapter 1, we read this. And I, which is Kohelet, applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom... All that is done under heaven. Now, intriguingly, Kohelet is clear that the, that the method he is using is to conduct his search for meaning using wisdom. And I think we have a, another slide too. So wisdom is how we translate it. Cholkam is Hebrew for wisdom. Everyone say Cholkam. That's pretty good. I heard some like guttural. That was great. Good job. Um, I won't keep doing that because I'll lose my voice. But... Hokum is is not just wisdom, but it's a very specific kind of wisdom in Hebrew. This is the wisdom that finds its source in the knowledge and the fear and the relationship of God. It starts there. 
And it's used all through the book of Proverbs and really pretty generally throughout the Old Testament, referring to a wisdom that has its source beginning with the knowledge of God. And the reason this is so interesting and kind of, frankly, shocking is that in Ecclesiastes, we see Kohelet using this word over and over again, but using it incorrectly because it keeps leading him to very negative conclusions. And we see this in the very next verse. In verse, um, oh, in verse 13, um, I applied my heart to seek and search out wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. That word vanity is the Hebrew chabel, which literally means wind or air. Essentially, he's saying it's as impossible as trying to catch air. You can't do it. It's meaningless. So, as Kohelet describes his, his quest, as it unfolds throughout the book, we find his quest is informed by a certain way of thinking, and this is really important, that is dependent on reason, observation, and experience alone. As I was doing research for this, I came across a couple of scholars who wrote a really good book about the wisdom literature of the Bible. And they wrote this about Kohelet. For instance, he, which is Kohelet, does not begin with the fear of the Lord. By contrast, the great characteristic of Ecclesiastes is Kohelet's continual use of the first person pronoun I. Which indicates his dependence on himself rather than on the Lord for an answer to the perplexing meaning of life. So, Kohelet searches for meaning in a lot of different areas. In fact, I, I, I listed them here, just a few of them, not all of them. But he, he, look, he looks for meaning in self-indulgence. Maybe if I just, like, make myself happy with every material I, thing I can have and every relationship I can have, just pour it all in with all of the Taco Bell I can eat, right? And, and then also to live wisely, like, to, to, to use wisdom to find the meaning of life. Now, this is inter- interesting because, again, this word wisdom is hokum. And he uses it wrong because he goes to himself first. He looks inward to find this wisdom, to live wisely. And, and it doesn't work. And then he goes to work. I think a lot of us can relate to that. We go to our jobs to find meaning, to find purpose. And it doesn't quite work there. He goes to wealth and honor, to riches, and it doesn't quite work there. He, he even goes to, into contrasting between wisdom and folly, seeing like, is it better to live kind of spontaneously without any plans? Or is it better to, to use wisdom in, in kind of structures? And then lastly, keeping the commands of the governing rulers. Maybe if I just submit myself to what other people tell me to do, I will find happiness or I'll find meaning or I'll find salvation there. In other words, oh, and with each endeavor, he comes back to the same refrain that all is like trying to catch air. Meaningless. In other words, he searches everything under the sun, his words, not mine, with all the wisdom he can muster and he never finds the meaning he is looking for. Apart from what he calls, and this is chapter 12, which is the last, almost the last verse of the last chapter of the Bible. Or not the Bible, of this book. He says this, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And he comes to this conclusion at the very, very end. As if to say, I have tried everything else. And I have not found meaning, I have not found purpose, I have not found salvation in anything other than the fear of God and keeping his commandments. So if you're you're taking a 
notes today, I encourage you to write this down. The source from which we derive wisdom is just as important as wisdom itself. If we have, if we have a, a goal to, to seek out happiness, to seek out a better future, a holistic future, it matters where we are gaining our source material from. Ecclesiastes is a story of a very hard and confusing journey. This is a guy who really, at the end of the day, just wanted to find purpose. He just wanted to know what, I mean, we've all asked that question. God, why am I here? What am I supposed to do? How do I make my life matter in the world? And he did what a lot of us do, which is search inward. We start here with ourselves. We echo, and so does Kohelet, echoes the cries of William Ernest Henley's Invictus, where he says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We envision, envision a bigger and brighter tomorrow created by the work of our own hands. If we can just gain more knowledge or more understanding or be more connected, we will solve this messy problem of meaning, purpose, and salvation. But the problem in this approach not the end goal. To find salvation, to find purpose and meaning is a wonderful, beautiful thing that we should all aspire to. The, the problem is not the goal. It's, it's the method of how we get there. Eugene Peterson, um, he uh, is sort of a famous name because he wrote a, a translation of the Bible known as The Message. He also is the author of multiple other books. Uh, and one of them, he, he writes this, which is a really good explanation, I think, of our of what I'm trying to say here. When things go wrong, whether at home or in society, in church or in government, it is easy to find a moral reason. Disobedience or ignorance of the biblical commandments is obviously at the root of a lot of what is going wrong with the world. I can agree with that. We conclude that if we only, if only we can educate our children and our parents and our politicians and our professors, our business leaders and our celebrities in right thinking and in right behavior, things will improve dramatically. And all this is true enough. But the moment this becomes our basic orientation for dealing with what is wrong with the world, we have turned our backs on the cross of Christ, on Jesus as our Savior. Those are strong words, and I know that. But I think he's on to something here. What Peterson is getting at here is, is that there's something deeper going on in order to find meaning, to find, to find a better, more fulfilling tomorrow. Something more than what technology can offer. Uh, the third thing I encourage you to write down is this. Real hope doesn't just fix a problem. It transforms the person. Hope should keep going. I talked about that a few weeks ago. But hope should, shouldn't just come to a point and then stop. Like that's empty hope. Hope is something that is grounded and rooted. That has life beyond problems. That has life into eternity. Kohelet's problem is finding meaning that Sorry, Koel's problem in finding meaning was that he didn't start at the source. He used hokum incorrectly. And Proverbs 1, verse 17, clearly shows us what it's, it's meant to do. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise hokum. That's hokum there. Wisdom and instruction. A fundamental belief of the followers of Jesus is that we are in need of a Savior. That we don't fix things on our own. That we need someone else to fix it for us. To put this once more in different terms, C.S. Lewis outlined this problem by, by saying this in Mere Christianity. Um, 
health is a great blessing. Amen? Amen. But the moment you make health one of your main direct objects, you start becoming a crank. I love that word. It's so funny. And imagining there is something wrong with you. You are only likely to get health provided you want other things more. Did you catch that? You are only likely to get health provided you want other things more, like food, games, work, fun, open air. In the same way, we shall never save civilization as long as civilization is our main object. We must learn to want something else even more. There is something that, that every bit of my effort cannot create for my child, for my, for my next generation. There is something that God can create that is something way more dynamic and way more powerful. And that is what, that is what I wish the trend would lean towards. That as we become more connected, we would become more dependent on God who makes us whole. So this is my main point. A Christian response to, to the trend of social progress being not only linked to but dependent on the idea um, that we are responsible for our own salvation is to realize a deeper desire for something much better. Again, to quote C.S. Lewis, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. And to take that, and take what Lewis said a step further, the reason we hope and what we hope in is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that is a hope that keeps on going. Jesus said it like this. Um, after he had ri- risen from the dead, he was telling his disciples he was going to... Not, no, I'm sorry, not after he risen from the dead, but he was foretelling his disciples after he rises from the dead that he's going to go and prepare a place for his disciples. And Thomas, one of his disciples, asks him a question. Um, how will they know where to go? How, how will they arrive to the future hope which Jesus is going ahead to prepare? And he said this to them. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And I can imagine you do know him and you have seen him, him pointing to himself. Jesus is the way to a more dynamic, hopeful future. And um, the question, I think, in the end is, okay, but how do I live into that, right? That's, that's a great idea. How do I live into that? What I want to do to close today is I want to give you three practices, three challenges this week to try one or all of them or two of them or whatever. But, but three activities to involve yourself in Desiring something more than just what you can create or more than what society or culture can create, but something that is dynamic that you need God to activate in your life. The first one is to slow down. We live in a culture today that maybe for the first time ever, we have to remind ourselves to breathe, which is like normally a natural thing. Just breathe on your own. But we have to remind ourselves to stop, to take to take notice, to slow down. And, I, and I've started doing this. I'm starting doing this. I'm not perfect. I'm very new to it. But by creating what I call no techno zones. It's a lame name, I know. But it works for me. And the way I d- do this is, is I made my smartphone into a dumb phone. Um, I did this a week ago. And basically, I, I don't have any social media on my phone. Uh, I don't even get emails to my phone anymore. Um, and, and I just use it 
I know this is going to be crazy, has a phone. <sighs> what? Wild. Right? So I, I, I've started doing that. And then what, what, I, what I'll start to do is around 7.30 is about the time when my, my daughter is, she's about ready for bed. And so I take her and get her ready, which is really hard because she's like five months and she like hates putting on clothes and stuff, but it's super fun. And, and, and so at, at around seven o'clock, I turn my phone off just totally. No techno zone. Because I want that, those moments of me hanging out with my daughter to be just her and I. I want to see her. I want to know her. I want to know her personality. And then when I put her to bed, like three hours later, um, I want to hang out with my wife if we're not totally asleep already. I want to be in the room with her. I want to look into her eyes. I want to slow down. And what that does in me, what I've noticed, is it makes me really thankful. Which leads me to my, to my next practice, my next challenge for you. Practice gratitude. Once you slow down, take a little bit of time to take stock in your life. In a couple areas, one, start with what you see. If you, if you live in a house with a family that loves you, look around and be grateful for that. To realize what we have in this country. I mean, I, I know, I think it was yesterday, they, they ran a race for water around the world. And I have sometimes problems with my water running too much. I have to fix it. That's, in, that's something to be incredibly grateful for. Deeply grateful for. Do it in the small things. Do it with your relationship with Christ. If you don't know where to start, read Romans 8. Go home right now and read Romans 8. Remember that we were dead in our sin, that Christ revived us, and he has made us a new life, a, a new hope in him. But practice gratitude. And what this will do is it will remind you that the hope that you can create, you need other people. You need Jesus. You need something more than yourself. And lastly, and this is the hardest one of all of them, confess regularly. Um, so my wife and I try to do this. and We've been married four years, and we're still afraid of what the other person is going to think of us when we confess. Uh, but we try to do it anyway. Um, because of something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote. He wrote this book called Life Together, and he said that we, we create a practice of confession because when a person sits down in front of me and confesses their sins, I get to be Jesus to them in that moment and say, God forgives you, so I forgive you. Go and sin no more. And so my encouragement to you is to find someone, someone trustworthy, someone, someone you can put your hope in, and they'll, they'll take care of it. And when you mess up, which is every day for me at least, confess. Say, I, I, I wanted to do this well here, and I didn't. I do it all the time. I, I screwed up on a no techno zone thing just this week. I was watching a video on how to play chess, and my wife was standing there like, what are you doing? Like, I'm, let's hang out. And I'm just like, yeah, but I want to know the queen's gambit. It's dumb. I just confessed to all of you. But... But what it does is it, is it offers, it, it, it reminds me that I need saving, that I'm not yet perfect, that I need something more than myself to create a better future for my home, for my family, for myself. So slow down, practice gratitude, confess regularly. Here to close, uh, I just want to say this. Uh, the future that we create for our kids, let it be one of serious dependence on the creator of the universe. Let it be one of depending on who God is. And let's do good things. Let's use technology for what it is good for, for, for what it can produce in, in a holistic way, in a healthy way in our world. 
But let's not ever be dependent on, on something that doesn't give us the fullness of life, which really at the end of the day is God himself. Pray with me. Jesus, I pray that your word has gone forth today and that you um, would inspire us to live more faithfully to you, more, more holistically to you. God, I pray that, um, that our imaginations would go beyond a supercomputer that has the capabilities of, of every human person on the world, Lord. But it, it would go into a reality where you are king and all things are right. And we would do our best to create that life and that reality here now until you come and make it final. So God, inspire us today. May, may, we, may we trend against the cultural trends and depend more on you, depend more on our community, more on our church, Lord. Let, it, let us follow you faithfully and with zeal. We trust you and we love you. In Christ's holy name, amen. If you would like a jump start today on some of the practices and challenges, there are people in the back who are willing and happy to pray with you. Go in peace and have a great week.